and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Probstfeld. Please join me as we encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. The goal of this podcast is to promote love as an action and live life more authentically. Just think about it. In five generations from now, you will have approximately 30 descendants and the number keeps getting larger and larger. We have more power as moms than we realize. Motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. Listening is both an underrated as well as overrated skill. It is overrated in the fact that many of us talk entirely too much negative self-talk in our own heads, and we listen to it like it's just fact. And so many times what we think just isn't true. It's not fact. We don't need to believe what we think. Um, It's not necessarily true. But we're always, or many of the times, just listening to, oh, I messed that up. Oh, I um, am comparing myself to someone else, uh, to another mom, or I, um, I, I didn't do that well enough today. And we don't necessarily need to be listening to that. We can say, you know what, I'm going to try harder next time, or not even harder. I'm going to, I'm just, I, I'm good enough. I'm okay. This is, this is okay to not be perfect. And um, I feel like so much of this uh, comparison, like on social media and in other uh, aspects of our lives too, is we are comparing uh, our insides with other people's outsides like social media for example like I'm not posting all of the um you know just like the nitty-gritty of life I'm posting like all these really nice pictures of myself with you know the family pictures or stuff like that and um not necessarily like my messy house um that doesn't get on my on my Facebook feed, right? Um, so that actually, that was a quote uh, about the insides versus outsides um, by uh, The Good Life by Dr. Waldinger, who is the author of a, um, or not the author, I'm sorry, uh, the director of the Harvard study. Um, he is the author of The Good Life, but he's the director of the Harvard study um, that's been around since 1938. If you haven't um, read my blog post, I encourage you to do so. It talks about um, kind of a, a essentially what the happy life is, is relationships. Um, it's been proven time and time again. He talks about, and for century, for a century now. Um, so I'm currently reading his book, and it's just excellent. So I want to continue to read that. And, um, but... I mean, so listening is a lot of our social relationships, right? And it is overrated. Um, so listening is overrated when it's when we're trying to have a conversation and we're thinking about, you know, what did I say? Did I sound silly the way I said it? What should I say next? How do I look? Like, what am I doing tomorrow for? or it's getting late, you know, I'm not really actively listening to what the other person is saying all the time. Um, and when many of us have this self-talk, um, we are listening to ourselves, um, more so than the other person. So, uh, I recently stumbled across an interesting article, 
um, from the Harvard Business Review, and it was simply titled, Listening to People. After reading, I thought it was so applicable to society today, and it must be brand new. I always like to look at what year the study is published to see if it's relevant. Um, it actually was published in September of 1957, um, which I'm like, oh, well, I guess that is not a brand new article. It's almost, it's more than 50 years old, but oh my gosh, it was so relevant to today. It was wild to think that, is this really, was this really published that long ago? Um, the article was written by, uh, Nichols and Stevens, and they make so many relevant points. And I'm going to quote some of it here. Um, they state, it can be stated with practically no qualification that people in general do not know how to listen. They have ears that hear very well, but seldom have they acquired the necessary oral skills which would allow those ears to be used effectively for what is called listening. Nichols and Stevens discuss the origins. It, the origin of this is the lack of listening education in the classroom. The authors point out reading is the most usual method of learning, and not many schools teach other methods of communication. And it was figured if one reads well, then they will listen at the same level, which isn't necessarily the case. To compare conversation with two people, the authors also point out it's like building um, and dissembling something. So, like, for example, the Statue of Liberty, uh, when it was shipped um, in the 19th century from France, it needed to be disassembled and then shipped across the ocean and then reassembled, um, which is kind of like communication in a way. There's so many moving parts. Like you are, you think a thought, you have to disassemble it to be able to speak to another person who then has, reassembles it in their head. And there's um, so many times that you know, the message can get lost or interpreted differently because they're two different people. Um, like, will that listener hear and understand what the speaker does have to say? It's kind of similar to that game of telephone. Um, the authors of this uh, 1950s study also states that emotions can impact listening skills. In other words, listening stops if we do not agree on a topic, um, especially if the topic evokes feelings. Instead, one may mentally plan to disagree. On the other hand, we listen closely and more easily if we do agree on the topic and have emotion tied to that topic. Subsequently, the tendency is to agree with all that is said, regardless of if it's true or not. Nichols and Stevens, these authors said, emotions act as oral filters. At times, they in effect cause deafness, and at other times, they make listening altogether too easy. So I thought that was so interesting, and gosh, we're more than 50 years later, and we're still definitely dealing with similar um, listening issues, right? So another important aspect of listening is paying attention, like I was saying, to, or, or not, or I guess not really paying attention to our own self-talk. Um, <clears throat> if what we say to ourselves is negative, then we are going to, it's going to shape how we feel. Um, Dr. Edmund J. Bourne states that our internal speech really does um, affect our uh, emotion and our mood. Um, and our self-talk, according to Dr. Bourne, is very immediate. And it really is sometimes. I don't even know that I'm thinking like a, men a negative mental script at times. It just automatically pops into my head. 
Um, in the moment, it's difficult to realize we can control it. And therefore, if personal control over a feeling is not realized, an action may be taken based on this internal dialogue. Remember, what we think is not necessarily true. So Dr. Bourne also states, anxious self-talk is usually not rational, but sounds very true. The worst case scenario that comes so quickly in our minds, we may not even realize it originated from our own self-talk in the first place. It reminds me of this funny character that I saw a while ago on the internet, and I don't know who originally drew it or referenced it, but she is called Anxiety Girl, and she's a superhero with a cape with an A for anxiety, and it says, Anxiety Girl, leaping to the worst case scenario in a single bound. And that is so me. That's just, that's my superhero power, apparently. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. You know, I, I think that it is so important to emphasize, though, that um, just because we think it does not necessarily mean it's true. There's so many times that we can essentially, like, um, uh, argue, not argue, but kind of just say to ourselves, that's just um, self-talk's opinion. That's my negative self-talk opinion. Um, an opinion is not a fact, okay? So sometimes talking isn't even needed and nonverbal speech is better um, because nonverbal says a lot. And when words are not effective, giving a friend a hug or even hugging your inner child with a warm embrace um, or thinking of a warm embrace, um, that can sometimes help stop that negative self-talk. I, I know that helps me sometimes. So um, I want to just switch gears for a minute and talk about listening, but in a different aspect. Um, and that's with music. So I'm a flutist and... Yes, it is flutist. Um, so many times people say, oh, is it flutist or flautist? And they usually prefer flautist. But I did look it up for the sake of this podcast, and flautist is actually the British version of flutist. So, um, But flutist is the original term, and really it, it's mostly from Britain that um, they would say flautist. So there you go, next time you meet a flute player. Um, but... Anyway, I was a music performance major in college, and it was a huge part of my life for a long time. A piece that sticks out for me was when I played Mozart's Concerto in G Major. It was my first memorized solo piece in front of the orchestra on stage for everyone to see, and I was absolutely petrified. I wanted to run as fast as I could in my fight-or-flight response. My amygdala, if you remember from my previous episodes, that fight and flight, the amygdala, it was alarming nonstop in a, essentially it was a false alarm. I was not in a life or death situation, but it absolutely felt that way. Um, but I stayed, I, I, I pushed through the stress and I walked out on stage, um, the stage in my college, uh, the door cracked open in such a very, um, it always had the same noise. I will always remember that crack of the door. So the door opens, I walk out onto stage, there's bright lights. The stage is really crowded, um, so I was scared I was going to like knock over a violin player or knock into their bow, but I didn't. And I walked up there and just started playing. Um, I was so nervous, and I remember all I did was I locked eyes with the upper left 
ceiling. There was a left stained glass window there. And like a robot, I waited for the violins to finish their opening line. And then it was my turn to start playing. So my when I counted down, you know, in music, you have to kind of essentially like count the beats out. So in a three, two, one, then my brain just mechanically played the music um, despite my amygdala sirens. It just kept playing. And once the performance finished, it was about, I don't know, like a 15-minute performance or so, I lifted down the flute like a weight magically disappeared from my shoulders as I regained human consciousness. Um, so again, I encourage you to look at my, or listen to my uh, first two episodes on that fight or flight freeze response, because that was absolutely one of them, um, which didn't have as much to do with listening. But I do want to talk about music in the sense that I was trained to be a musician. This is what I was trained to do. I was trained to walk out on stage and deal with that fight or flight response in a productive way in order to just get into performance mode and play, which absolutely has helped me in many aspects of like public speaking and teaching and all of that. But, um, but also, you know, it's, um, it's something that I think is an important phenomenon to talk about this fight or flight response. Um, so as shadows in the night appear larger and scarier, so can, I'm sorry, scarier. So can the stories or self-talk our brain makes up. Recently, there was some type of nocturnal creature who made ominous scratching noises in the attic. Like, I don't know. It was probably, who knows, a rat or not a rat, a mouse or something. Um, Matt ended up getting it. I think it was a mouse. Um, Anyway, um, as an adult, I knew it was some type of rodent. However, once the kids heard about it, their amygdalas fired rapidly. They made up elaborate stories of what kind of sinister creature it could be and how it would chase them off into the middle of the night. Their prefrontal cortex did not filter the fear very well. What really could have happened to me on that stage, like that I was playing Mozart, Petrified? I could have, I guess, completely went blank, forgot the music. But then again, that was about 20 years ago, and I doubt anyone would remember that whatsoever, except for me. And maybe I could have tripped on stage on one of those violin players or something. And I think that people probably would remember that one if I tripped and into a bunch of violin players and they all fell. But it would be a funny experience. So really, there was no life or death situations there. Um, so more about the flute, um, just briefly. Um, the flute has always been a close companion of mine. And do you remember, uh, I don't know if... Um, if everyone did this, but like in fifth grade or some grade around that time, um, you were allowed to pick out a musical instrument in grade school. And I recall all the gold brass instruments shimmering in the light. And that contrasted with like a bright red carpet. It just looked really kind of cool in that band room. When I was 10 years old and it was just a cool looking band room. And I picked up a shiny trumpet. I remember that day just because it looked so shiny and, and, but when I played it, it didn't feel quite right. Like I made a sound out of it, but I'm like, I don't know about this. And then next to the trumpet, I picked up the flute and it spoke to me, but I could not get a single sound out of it. So the music teacher kind of he like shook his head, wrote down on a piece of paper that I was going to be a trumpet player. And I remember being so devastated. I fought back tears and sat down thinking, I don't, I don't want to play the trumpet. I want to play the flute. 
um, later on, I guess my mom called the school because I just had to play the flute and, um, cause it really did speak to me. Um, so growing up, uh, I was inspired by two music teachers. My flute professor guided me through my college years and she steered the direction of my life with confidence and not only music, but myself. And my piano accompanist was, she was a great friend and she challenged my worry like no one else did before and was the first person that I talked to about my fascination for that flight, fright, freeze system. Like it was, it would, I just, I remember such great conversations that we had. Um, so again, during this time, I was full-blown trained to be a concert musician in every sense of the word. I love my flute, but I was not destined to be a concert musician. Instead, this crippling anxiety that I learned to control quite well um, just really made it very difficult to um, pursue um, it, at that level. And I just didn't feel like that was my calling in life. Um, I remember taking bows um, at all, after these concerts and these recitals. And in order to properly bow on stage, you are supposed to bend both feet down and say to yourself, I am wearing blank color shoes. So that's that's the proper way to bow. If you ever have to bow, there you go. So you say, you bow, I'm wearing blank colored shoes. Then you stand back up and you smile. So um, you then perform. You let the music do its thing and you're in a trance and you just play. So I think, you know, there's the, mecha the mechanics of all of that. So that was a little bit of information about the mechanics of being a musician. But there's another side of music and of listening that is an art, that is life itself in a different way. It's not like a mathematical way. Um, so I started to learn that in graduate school. When I was at Yale, I had to pick out a topic for my thesis. And naturally, since you know I studied um, uh, to be a nurse practitioner, I and I was a musician. I wanted to combine the two in my thesis, so I decided to write about the high risk and the healthy infant. Um, that was the title of my um, paper. So I talked about in my paper how Twinkle Twinkle Little Star can calm babies and soothe them. I was not a mom at the time, and I. It was very mechanical. I wrote the paper. It was a mechanical paper. And I mean, it was it was fine. Like I I wrote what I needed to do. I cited what I needed to cite. But I didn't really have emotion to it. I liked babies and I liked music. Um, but once I became a mom and my baby was in the NICU, um, that was when it really tested my hypothesis of my thesis. Because the high risk and the healthy infant was – Essentially, the high-risk infant would be in the NICU. Um, so when I was told that I was going to the NICU with my baby, I, I was living my thesis. And I didn't, I don't think I realized at the time that, oh, this is my thesis. Um, but the truth is, I did not care at all if they were playing music to my baby when she was getting a procedure done. Uh, like if, if there was like a needle stick or something like that, um, where they were putting something sharp into like my little baby, I could care less or I couldn't care less about what music was being played. 
And um, I just think it's so interesting that it's just so different when you actually live in the moment. Um, it, was, it truly was. It was gut-wrenching during those experiences. All I wanted to do was hold her. I didn't want anything to do with any other, like, anything else. I didn't want it happening. Um, I just wanted to get all the cords off her, and I wanted to leave the NICU. I wanted to just run away from it. Again, probably that fight-flight response. Um, so, but interestingly, during that time, music took on a whole new meaning to me. I sung music to her so much. I played music for her and it was so, I did see it being calming, but you know, the surprising thing to me was that it calmed me. Like, I think it may have even calmed me more than it calmed her. Um, like I'll never forget those NICU nurses, like just they, they did like this mm, mm, kind of like just very rhythmic kind of uh, humming um, to calm her down. I'll never forget that. Um, and then when I was holding her, I just remember sitting in the chair in the NICU in, the, in this new alternate universe of life that was stressed upon me um, and holding her and um, – just looking at her IV board in her arm, but also singing songs and just singing to my little angel. Like she was sleeping a lot of the time, but those songs got me through the battlefield of what is known as the NICU. So it really was, it was mom. It was mom that, that music helped. Um, so this high risk, healthy infant stuff, you know, I, I, um, I think that was just so interesting, like how music took on a whole new meaning to a musician. So once I brought uh, my baby home, he continued to sing and dance. My daughter loved it, but I, again, I did, I did so much. And um, these precious musical memories made me want to go and play in hospitals more and to help just a bit with stress uh, for other patients and their families and to offer solace that music can provide for a brief moment. And there's actually science behind this. Um, lullabies synchronize heart rates together and have a calming effect for both the mom and the baby. So um, so it actually did make sense that I was being calmed by the music um, just as much or if not more than my baby. Um, Sorelli and NPR state that researchers discovered that when mom sung Twinkle Twinkle Little Star... Uh, to their baby, it increased calmness, not only in the infant, but also the mom. It's kind of like pet therapy. I love how the kids get to see those dogs when they have their sweet little badges. Like they literally have like a badge of a dog sitting there just looking up at the camera and they swipe in those badges into like, you know, into the hospital to gain access. And it's just kind of funny to see those little dogs or those big dogs sometimes. Um, and it's so sweet to see the kids, uh, you know, play with those pet therapy dogs. But also, I think sometimes moms or dads need those pet therapy dogs. Like, I I needed a dog. Um, and I, I know sometimes when I'm upset, I will hug my dog. And it, it helps. She just stoically sits there, clueless to the mental thunderstorm that's going on in my head, but loyally just sits there nonetheless. As my heart rate synchronizes to hers, it, it, it just, it really helps. And sometimes also, I feel like drawing a picture can help um, when I literally can't think of another way to get out of my thoughts. Um, that can be helpful. Um, 
And it's really where art and science meet. All of this is just, um, you know, just being human. Uh, so thinking about music and the brain, it, it really is there throughout the lifespan. I mean, it's there from birth till, till, um, until death, essentially. And even in um, dementia, many times the um, that's the last uh, memory of the, our like childhood songs. Um, and it's, it's just a very interesting topic. Also, um, when we want to get our kids to listen, we can use song, which I think is very interesting. So like, how would we be able to get kids to clean up sometimes, especially like in a group or in a classroom, if we didn't sing the cleanup song? Um, as, or like when the volume, like a bunch of kids are talking at the same time. I remember my child's teacher um, just sung, stop, look, listen, and they did. Like it was, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't have done that if she just said it, but just saying it in that melody made them kind of come out of their, come out of um, their volume and, and actually listen. Um. So sometimes I feel like we all have to stop, look, and listen when the volume in our head starts to increase. And maybe even literally singing that to ourselves. So when you have a negative self-thought, maybe just stop, look, listen. I can't sing, but, you know, you get the point. Maybe you can sing better than me with that. But <laughs> but, but saying those three things uh, or those three words, see if that helps. Um. So uh, more things. Oh, just another thing that I wanted to briefly touch on uh, that I thought was just really interesting uh, with like listening, but um, is that children are frequently observing and listening to our conversations. In fact, their brains subconsciously pay more attention to our voice. Now, a few years ago, I was surprised that the carbon monoxide detector was alarming and it was right outside my kid's door, but they didn't wake up to it. It was so loud. And at first that concerned me about their hearing. I was like, why in the world are they not waking up? They're sleeping right through this incredibly loud alarm. Um, but so I did an internet search on it and my worry, my anxiety girl worry. And it actually says that kids, many kids don't wake up to them. Instead, what a kid would wake up to more um, more often is their mom or dad's voice, which I think is so cool that the kids are programmed to wake up to their parents' voice instead of a, a smoke detector or carbon monoxide alarm. Um, there's actually research studies that have um, confirmed this too. Uh, according to the Center for injury and research policy and sleep disorders, 85 to 89% of children woke to a male or female voice, whereas only 56% of children to an alarm. So I thought that was pretty cool. But um, so that's the end of this podcast. I hope um, y'all will take some time to find um, the underrated part of listening and try to make that more in your life of active listening and the overrated part of the negative self-talk. Try to decrease that and stop, look, and listen. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to subscribe to my podcast and my newsletter. Thank you so much and have a great day.